This is Internet Marketing. Well, welcome to the show where we give you the lowdown, the inside information and the word from the experts to help you use the internet as part of your marketing machine. Internet marketing is brought to you by Site Visibility at sitevisibility.co.uk. I'm Andy White and in episode 58 we have your questions answered by Kelvin Newman and Daniel Rouse. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 58 of Internet Marketing and I have on the line Mr. Kelvin Newman. Hello, hello. And Mr. Daniel Rowles. Hello everybody. Dan is speaking from a Samsung CO1U and uh, Mr. Kelvin is speaking from his brand new snowball mic just for the technically minded there. You'll still be able to hear the seagulls in the background. <laughs> in today's show we have a very exciting announcement which we'll save to the end. And uh, But first, um, Kelvin, I think you've got um, a few questions which need answering from our listeners. Yeah, I mean, we, we always get lots of questions in over the email and we try to answer them over email. But there's a few I've held back this month to um, try and answer on air because, I've, you know, I thought that these questions particularly would be quite useful um, for everyone else to hear and, and share. So I've got a couple. I know Dan's got one as well to, to go through. So, yeah, a bit of a Q&A special um, this week. OK, well, let's kick off then. What's the first question? Okay, well, this was from Matt Buchanan, and he's um, a fairly new listener to the show, but he's been working his way back through them. And he's got a question about PageRank, as it were. And he says, is there a source that lists all the sites that link to mine and lists their respective page ranks together? Um, Google's link colon um, domain.com works great for a list, but it'd be awesome to see um, a page rank next to each site in the list. Um, this is actually quite a common question that we get. And I, I know I was talking to Dan about it yesterday that if someone was asking him the same question. Mm. Um, there's a number of tools out there. Um, the one that I always um, try to recommend in these situations is one called linkdiagnosis.com. Um, and you have to download a little Firefox plugin to make that work. But it's a really great tool that will, you put in a website. So it could be yours, but it could be a competitor's. And you put in the URL and it will come back with a list of all the people who are linking to that website. It will deduplicate it. So you get none of the repetition you get in um, Yahoo Site Explorer or none of the kind of minimal results you get in um, Google link colon um, and then it gives you the page rank of them so you can sort by page rank it gives you the the variety of anchor text that people are using to link to you and, and all these kind of things so that's a great tool there to use but there is one sort of slight downside um, to this tool and that mm. is it uses the Yahoo Site Explorer API so it pulls its data from Yahoo's um, data centers which is brilliant at the moment because it means it's very reliable but as a few of you will probably have already heard and know that Bing and Yahoo are essentially merging their search engines, which means Yahoo aren't going to be maintaining their, their search index any further, which essentially means that there is a very high likelihood that when they do switch it off, that this tool is going to go kaput and not work anymore. I'm sure they'll be working in the background on another alternative way of making it work, but there's a danger that that might not be a long-term tool, as it were. Mm. So here, everyone was talking about this as a potential risk, um, and the guys at SEO Moz, who we're, we're big fans of here, went out and used their their data that they collect on their Linkscape tool, which is kind of quite expensive, and turned it into a free tool called opensiteexplorer.org. Um, and what that does is, for free, you can get some basic reports out there, which give you a link of the page ranks of some of your top top websites, as it were. And then kind of for a, a small extra fee for a member of SEO Moz, you can get some extra data for all of them. But if you just want to take a quick snapshot of what are your most important links, that Open Site Explorer is a great new tool that a lot of people might not have heard about before. And 
you know, has a lot of longevity, you know, and the potential to be around for several more years. Yeah, absolutely. I was, I was looking at it yesterday with a group of people I was doing a training course with, um, phoned Kelvin halfway through the course to ask a question. Yeah, what was a what was a good tool for looking at this stuff, and it is fantastic. So yeah. just started playing around with it as well. I'm just um, looking at it now, actually. On these, it is www.opensiteexplorer.org, as you'd expect it to spell it. Nice clean interface. So basically, you just put a URL in there, and what does it give you back, Kelvin? It gives you basically uh, an overview using SEO Moz's index of the web of the number of people who are linking to you. Okay. So if you're, um, you know, I'm. A, if you're doing any kind of SEO, you want to get as many of those high quality trusted links as possible. So a good place, you want to benchmark where you are currently. So if you're doing any work, you can compare it to the past. But also, if you've got a big competitor out there, look at who's linking to them because there's a good chance they might want to link to you as well. So it's great for that kind of thing as well. Mm. So you can take any website and see who their best links are. Yeah, I've just put my own domain in there, actually, and I've got a page authority of 36 out of 100. Anyway, moving on. Um, <laughs> um, sorry, Danny, you wanted to chip in. I could hear you chipping yeah, in. Then. Yeah, just, just one thing then. The Yahoo Bing deal, which is quite interesting. I had a meeting with Yahoo last week to have a chat about this, um, and they're very insistent that they're still very, very focused on search, and they're still a search engine, but it does feel um, that they've realized that they're not making any ground on Google, and they need to change their focus quite heavily as you would have seen from a lot of the advertising campaigns that go out there um their key marketing kind of message now that it's all about you and you can have facebook and you can have your gmail and all those kind of things in one place in yahoo but uh their focus on search for my impression does seem to be declining somewhat so mm, okay. they're doing this deal with bing to to bring in all the data from bing so we'll just see how it progresses yeah sorry to our listeners if uh, daniel briefly sounded like a dalek then that's the power of uh, skype for you never mind a my internet connection um right next question I sound yeah, like a quiz master, um, don't I? <laughs> this was from a chap called Andrew Gray um, from a company called knh.co.uk. And he was, um, he, his email said, I'll read it out for you guys, was, um, I'm a big fan of the podcast, keep up the good work. Um, I have a Google Analytics query. Um, for the last month, our stats show unique visitors, um, 517 um, new visitors, um, 48.73%. So he says, does this mean that 252 people, i.e. the 48.73% of the 517 people, visited the site for the first time ever during this period? Or at least people that didn't have cookies indicating they had been there since Google Analytics was set up, to be precise. So generally, what um, Andrew's asking here is a question I get quite a lot when I'm training on Google Analytics, and I know Dan's got a good answer on this, is what is a new visitor um, when you get your percentage of new visits? Mm. Sure. So I mean... The, the new visits are the new visits within that date range that you've set. So if you set it for 30 days, it's the people that have visited for the first time during that 30 days. But they may have visited any number of days before then. So as you stretch out that period of time, you'll obviously see a different number of new visits coming in. Mm-hmm. So it's new visits in the period of time that you've set. And like um, Andrew says, that it is based on cookies. So potentially if I look on my Mac um, at home and then go in and check on the office that would still be seen as two new visits even though i'm revisiting the site so yeah it's worth bearing in mind that with any of these kind of numbers you get out of analytics they're just a kind of sample and an idea but they're better than not knowing at all so yeah in um in andrew's case it looks like it's got a fairly sort of standard 50 percent new visitors ratio there which you kind of get mixtures from site to site but um, that's kind of what you would expect for a fairly normal kind of commercial site. It'd be a bit different if you were looking at the stats of Facebook or Twitter or something where people go on day after day, as it were. Mm. Yeah, I mean, anything with social media content, so blogs and anything like that, you get a lot more repeat visits, which is the whole aim of doing it. So, Right, there was one other question, wasn't there, from your little flurry of questions, uh, Kelvin? 
Yeah, from the pile I got through on emails. It's from a chap called Rob. I'm not absolutely certain of Rob's surname, and I, I couldn't find the email again, unfortunately, just as we came on air. So sorry for that, Rob. Um, but Rob's question was about um, Google Chrome. And he said, I've started to see, and there's actually one just around the corner from me, where I live, um, loads of billboards for Google Chrome. Mm. Um, and this was before the Super Bowl, but also Google were advertising at the Super Bowl as well. They advertised a, a pretty good advert um, during the during the show there. Um, his question was, I thought Google got as big as they did kind of, you know, off the back of no advertising and kind of online advertising. Why, why do we think that, um, that they've started to switch to offline advertising? And is it a good idea? Well, this is a funny one for me, I think, because the, why are they av- actually advertising Google Chrome so much? And what's the long term strategy with it? Um, you know, are they seeing they're going to make some money out of this in the long term? Are they looking controlling the browser market a bit more? Uh, what's the advantage of them of having their own browser at the end of the day? And l- pretty much everyone I've spoken to about Chrome says, well, they loaded it up, they tried it out, they thought it was quite nice and fast and it had a good features, but now they've gone back to using Firefox. So um, I don't know if either of you guys are using it at the moment. Yeah, but... I'm using it. I'm using it on both my Mac and the PC. Uh, so, and do you use it more than you'd use everything no, else? It's now? not my primary browser. I don't know why. I'm, on the Mac, my primary bra- browser is Safari. I've also got Firefox on there. Mm. Uh, but I do actually. Being fair, I do on the on the PC, the Windows machine. I do use it as as much as I use Firefox, probably, because uh, mm. I just hate IE basically. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. But on the Mac, no, I, I use I only use it occasionally on the Mac. Mm. The, well, the thing I think that's really good about this, and this came from Mashable, but I think it's a great um, kind of. If ever Google make a move in business, and you can always, I think, most of the time understand it using this idea, which is. Google want more people to be online, right, mm. for a longer period of times because not only have they got their own search engine where they get all the adverts, but a huge percentage of the display adverts are them, you know, via their double click network that they've got yeah. there. So there's, there's, a, you know, there's huge amounts of, um, you know, they want people to be online because as soon as you're online, you might make money for Google. If you're on your desktop using word or whatever it is you're not online and you're not potentially going to make google money so what they want to do is they want to try and take everything that was on your computer and get it online and any way that they can do that is good so Mm. from the point of view of chrome is they want to get as many people online as they can and using google docs rather than word and using you know facebook rather than outlook or whatever it is that they want you know that there's the option to do when you're online instead of off so I think, you know, Chrome's just another way of doing that. But the problem is that all their kind of traditional, um, you know, word of mouth marketing that they do generally reaches just a a techie crowd. Um, And to be honest, a lot of the techie crowd, they're either on Mac already. So Safari and Chrome are very, very similar. So Chrome's not really any quicker than Safari, whereas Chrome is quicker than Firefox. And if you're already using Firefox, you're you're kind of quite a sophisticated browser user. So I think Chrome is kind of a little bit basic in comparison. Um, so for those kind of people, they're, they're probably going to stay where they are. The people who Chrome will be of a benefit to are the people who are using IE and have never switched before. And I think they're the people they're trying to reach with this kind of more mainstream marketing effort there. Um, I think, with, you know, we always talk on the, the podcast on, you know, internet marketing. So we kind of are big fans of that. But that's not to say that offline marketing can't work if you do it properly it's just you need to measure it and do all those kind of things so i would hope that you know google are you know if they're putting a billboard in a particular area of brighton they know that they've got your ip address for when someone downloads chrome i'm sure they're probably tying the two up there to try and see where it's working or not Mm, interesting yeah i mean this online and offline integration thing is a is a really big deal and it'd be interesting to see what they do because they did google did own 
um, a couple of outdoor advertising companies in the US and a cable channel. And they had moved themselves away from that slightly. So it's interesting to see them doing those more traditional forms of advertising, having kind of moved away from it. So um, I, I'll try and have to speak with a few people at Google and see what we can find out what the strategy is and the whole thing and see if we can get any more inside information for the, uh, for the next podcast. When did they start doing this? Is this quite a recent thing or have they been doing it for a while? Well, I've only seen them, Chrome is the first time I've really seen them doing this kind of thing. They've done a lot of direct mail before in the past, though. Mm. They have done offline marketing. Um, they did a lot of direct mail for pay-per-click for AdWords. Yeah, and they've, they've, I mean, the billboards are definitely very noticeable, but they kind of, um, any of the listeners in the UK will be familiar with the Metro, which is the free paper you get um, on the buses down here in Brighton, but generally on the trains and tubes in and around London. Mm. And when, uh, you know, not so long ago, they took the kind of, which is, this is a sign someone's taken marketing very seriously, is where they buy the front and back page of the Metro and put kind of a special cover on it. And Chrome did that a couple of months ago. So, you know, in the UK particularly, they're taking it quite seriously. seems like they are in the States because I know that it's a slightly different advert they did during the Super Bowl, but, you know, that's the most expensive piece of advertising you can do in, in, on television in a year. So yeah. they're clearly kind of taking this offline advertising quite seriously. But that's because, you know, I think Google is probably under more pressure now than they've ever been. You know, Yahoo and Bing teaming up together, Twitter not wanting to sell to them, all these kind of things that are going on at the same time that are kind of saying that they probably need to, they can't get by on how they did. They need to make more effort. Okay. Now, just before we move on to Dan, because no, I know, Dan, you've got a little bit of feedback, haven't you, on email marketing? Just before we yeah, talk about Yeah, a couple of that, questions there as well. Uh, can we just quickly do a quick mention? I know, I know none of us have had a proper good look at this uh, but what's all this um buzz about google mail buzz Is that yeah, any, does I everyone mean, played with it yeah, yeah i mean it's literally when we're recording this there's always a bit of a lapse between when we record these and when they go out but it came out two well a day and a half ago um from when we're recording this so you might be able to work out when we record it if you get your calendar out there and yeah basically um if you've not heard about it already um google buzz is a kind of add-on feature um for google mail um, which is kind of a Twitter functionality. So it's kind of short status updates that you share with the world. They can be photos, they can be websites you like, all the kind of stuff you would do on Twitter. I think so far, not many of my friends are using it. And all the people who are using it have, you know, buzzed a message saying, hello, what am I supposed to do here? Kind of not really know yeah. what the, the site's for. Yeah. So it's not getting a great pickup from amongst my connections, as it were. But no, I, th- I, mean- I think the value in it is, is, you know, like at email, you know, there's four or five different players in email, isn't there? You know, you kind of, you've got your Gmail, you've got your Yahoo, you've got your Hotmail. You know, you used to have quite a few more, but it's settled down around those sort of free, main free webmail providers. There's no reason why that can't be the same for sort of micro updates as well. There couldn't be your Twitter, your Buzz, your, you know, various other options that might yet come to the fore in the next couple of years. Well, I'm, I'm, I've got, quite, sorry, sorry, Dan, go ahead. No, it's fine. I just think there's a bit of a, a downside to this at the moment, the way they've initially launched it, is that unless you're using Gmail, you're not very likely to even try it out and have a look what's going on with it as well. So unless they roll this out into a more open way, we don't have to use Gmail because an awful lot of people just aren't going to use Gmail. So it's, it's great. It's improving Gmail. It might actually increase the number of people using Gmail because it adds some more functionality. But the nice thing about Twitter is that it was fairly neutral and it didn't rely on using a particular email client or a particular piece of software you could use twitter in any number of ways and i think that buzz because of it being so long on gmail at the moment and i'm sure they're going to expand it so you can use it in different ways but i think that's mm. going to really limit the uptake at the moment well, i mean looking on mine i mean I, basically it, it appears just below your inbox on google mail it says buzz and you go there and on mine 
it looks like just multiple threads. In fact, interestingly, um, one of my sort of techie friends, uh, Nick Butler, has, has, has used it. And he says, OK, I'm here, dot, 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 where's the buzz? <laughs> and then he's got people responding to him. And I did read somewhere that someone thought it was a little bit like Google Wave, but more static, which is a contradiction in terms, I know. Yeah, but it's interesting that they've this, this concept of mixing together media and tweets and email, that kind of thing, as they did with Wave. Um, there's a bit of a similarity here with Buzz. So I think, again, Wave confused people slightly because they hadn't quite got their head around the concept. Now they're introducing Buzz. Mm. I think it's going to take a little while for these things to sink in and people start to use them. I mean, I think the problem is for Google is that they're just launching too many things at the moment. You know, it's really hard to keep up with it. Every day it seems Google are launching something. So Google Wave was a couple of months ago. But yeah. around that period of time, they've, they've started rolling out um, social search, so, like yeah. a Google social, I forget the precise name of it, but essentially at the bottom of your search results, yeah. um, you get um, mentions of those keywords amongst people that Google think you're friends with. So it looks at your Gmail account, it looks at your Twitter account and kind of makes some assessments of those kind of things there and all those kind of things. There's loads that, you know, they're starting to include Google Twitter, um, Twitter results at the top of the thing. And there's all these things they're rolling out. And the prob- the thing that was brilliant about Google is they just made everything more simple. And my, my concern is for them at the moment is that they're making everything more complicated. And, um, you know, most of the people listening to the show are marketers and they want to know, okay, well, what can I do to promote my business? And at the moment, I don't think Buzz is worth worrying about until it gets that kind of critical mass. Twitter at the moment, if it overlaps with your crowd, yeah, potentially that can work quite well. But I think there's a danger that we can always be a bit magpie about it and always wanted to run and go to the, you know, the newest shiny mm, thing. Yeah, and really, yeah. what you need to do is focus on where your customers actually are because they're always going to be a little bit further behind in the, the, the cycle of adoption than, than you know, techie marketers are. You see, going back, go back to my horticultural background um, and my, my analogies that I like to use. To me, Google is like a hothouse of ideas, little seedlings coming up, and they just throw them out and try them. And I think it can be a bit confusing for people, but I tell you what, it gives us something to talk about on this show, doesn't it? It does, absolutely. <laughs> okay, should we move on? I know, Dan, you've had uh, some feedback on um, email marketing, haven't you? Yeah, I've got a few things in email marketing where people have come back from the episode we did a, a little while back. Um, one quick question, which is a search pay-per-click question. Um, it's Elliot Mist here, who is the director of Positive Research, um, and he's just asked the question, look, he's setting up a pay-per-click campaign for a client, and then he's going to be doing some optimization, some natural search optimization for that client. So he's asking, will the pay-per-click campaign help with the organic results? And if so, why? Well, the, the blunt answer to that is that no matter how much money you're spending on pay-per-click with Google, it won't improve your natural listings because the two things don't connect. Um, I mean, in terms of pay-per-click helping with SEO, it can help from the point of view that if you're doing pay-per-click, you've got some research data into what people are searching on, um, what happens with that traffic when it comes through to your website and that kind of thing. So there's obviously a benefit from that point of view. There's also the thing that when you do your SEO, as you get good rankings in the natural search, you can start to scale down the pay-per-click kind of things as well. So you should be balancing your budget off. So spending pay-per-click on things you're not naturally actually ranking for and, and balancing the two out. But I think the tone of the question was very much about, you know, if you spend enough on pay-per-click, does it help you out of natural results? Well, no, it doesn't because Google don't connect the two things up. Yeah, lots of people kind of have a conspiracy theory that that's kind of the connection there. Um, like, they, you know, no, they're convinced that that's the case. Yeah. And, and which seems mad to me because you would think if anything, 
if you were spending a lot of money on pay-per-click, what Google would want you to do is have bad natural results. They wouldn't yeah. want you to do well in the SEO because then you turn your pay-per-click off. So, yeah, <laughs> anyone who's, who thinks that's the case, there's no, there's, well, I've never seen any evidence for it, but I'm sure someone will send something in that proves it now. Oh, <laughs> but do we know for sure? I, I, I'm pretty sure we, we've, we've had a few clients over the years uh, with, with site visibility that, you know, spending an awful lot of money on pay-per-click and it, it wasn't having an impact on their natural search. So... I don't think it does connect, but I'd love to be proved wrong otherwise. <laughs> okay, and then just moving on to these email kind of bits of feedback. Um, I asked for people's open and click-through rates and just to kind of see what on average people get. Now, I got a few people coming through, but a lot of the people that came through were obviously showing how high their click-through rates are and what good open rates they got. So uh, there's Damien James here, who's digital measurement at 0.6. He had an open rate of 47% and a click-through rate of 44%, which is really high. So that's a, that's a fantastic, and that's a kind of average across 37 campaigns. Um, there was here, we've got John Ainsworth, who's from Make Sport Fun. And they sent out a fortnightly email newsletter, and they're getting open rates between 28 and 33%, um, and click-through range 12 to 16%. So again, that that's pretty good. If you want to find out what's kind of traditional for your industry and what's actually on average happening in most of your industry in terms of open rates and click-through rates, uh, the MailChimp website has got a fantastic list of dozens of different industries and what open rates, click-through rates, bounce rates and unsubscribes you should expect. So go and have a look on the MailChimp website for that one. Um, The other point that was made that's just come through on the email, there was a very, very good point made. Um, this was from Simon Buick, and Simon Buick is head of digital marketing at ELT Marketing, which is part of Oxford University Press. Mm-hmm. And he just raised a couple of more in-depth points um, on email stats. So, one of the first things he mentioned is how do you, you know, what's an accurate method of recording open rates? Because do you have to take allowances for text emails? Because the way an open rate is calculated is you send your email, there is an image in that email. And when your server asks for it, it shows the email system that that email has actually been opened because the picture is needed. Yeah. Now, that's skewed by two things. One, if it's a plain text email, there's no images, so there's no way of doing that. So that's going to skew your stats. Mm. The other thing is that most bits of email software now turn images off. So if your images are turned off and they don't get turned on, again, the open can't be tracked as well. So you have to bear that in mind. Most, most like most analytics, it's not perfect. It's far from perfect. Okay, so that's a very good point. Um, the other point that he makes that I thought was really interesting as well. When you're looking at your percentages of open rates over a period of time and click-through rates, it can get skewed over a period of time because what will happen is you start off with a big list and as time goes on, that list will be suppressed. And what I mean by that is there'll be people who are unsubscribing from the list. Mm but they're going to still be in your total numbers. So if your list is saying this percentage of people click through, is it looking at the total number of people in the list, including those that have unsubscribed, or is it looking at the percentage of people that you've attempted to deliver to? Now, it sounds like a bit of a technical thing, but the, the bottom line is over a period of time, that can really skew your results. So what you want to check is your email system is giving you a percentage of the emails that were sent out that were opened or clicked through, not just all the emails in your list. So bear that one in mind. Okay. And uh, while we're on the subject of email marketing, um, as normal, I'm ranting about MailChimp just because I think it's the most fantastic thing in the world. So MailChimp.com. Mm-hmm. Um, I have no shares in this company, I should point Maybe out. Maybe we should get them to sponsor us. Uh, well, I think I, they should give me some shares. I'd be quite happy with that. <laughs> um, they've got a couple of new features that are absolutely brilliant. First of all, they've got this thing called Time Warp. So when you send out uh, an email campaign, 
normally you'd say, right, I want my email campaign to go at nine, ten o'clock in the morning, whatever you seem seems to be working for you. Now you've got to take into account international considerations because obviously it's nine or ten o'clock in the morning at different places in the world at different times. So you'd split your list or you'd segment your list into different countries and you'd, you'd send out appropriately. They've now got a fantastic feature where you put in 9 a.m., you hit the time walk button and it will send it out to that email address to the country it's in at the right time. So you, do you don't need, need to worry com- about it. Do you Just need the country details for that, um, Dan? Um, does it well, work in terms of, you know, if it's a .co.uk, it sends it on UK time or is it doing it on kind of, you have to have a field that says what country? No, in? what it does, it's very clever. It does it when the IP address of the um, email so if anybody has opened an email previously mm-hmm. they work out the ip address from there and they will then of their isp and they will then work out the country they're in so it does it's only going to have to be good for the people that have actually opened your emails previously so you need some existing data now your isp ip address may be two cities away it could be you know a fair distance away but normally it's in the same time zone that you're mm. in not always but but more often than not so it does quite a good job of those people that are opening your email on a regular basis are going to get the email at the right time of day for them. So it's quite a nice little feature that saves an awful lot of time. So that's that really quite good. Yeah. yeah. And the other one they've got now as well is if you're sending out a campaign, they do A-B testing, but in a really nice way. So what it will do, it will take your whole list. You can create two different subject lines and it will take, say, 30% of your list. And to two segments of 15%, it will send out a different subject line. It will look at what the open rate or the click-through rate, the best one is. It will wait a day, and then after that day, it will automatically send out the rest of the list with the, the most popular version, the version that's worked most well for you. So it's a really good way of automating A-B testing because it was normally quite a slow process. You'd get your results, then you'd rebuild the campaign and send it out again. This does the whole thing automatically, and it can look at what the best open rate was, the best click-through rate, and then automatically send it out to the rest of your list. So a couple of nice little features to play around with. Um, so take a look. Sounds great. Uh, Dan, does that conclude your email marketing feedback? It does, thank you. Now, just before we talk about our exciting news, I know that, uh, Kelvin, you wanted to mention uh, a, a secret screencast that you've done. Yeah, there's a, there's a couple of things um, that I've got, yeah, that are exciting news before we get onto the really big exciting news. But um, the first one is um, last month we mentioned our survey. Um, that we've done and quite a few people have already got in touch there and we're already starting to act on the survey there so in terms of where people are saying what they want us to hear and some of the people they want us to interview and all those questions we're asking there we're starting to follow those up but I'm going to keep it open for another month um, there's some books up for grabs there's a couple of copies of Seth Godin um, his new book Lynchpin um, which um, we interviewed Seth last month um, Tim Ferriss, um, who we interviewed last month as well, his book, um, The Expanded 4-Hour Workweek, and a couple of other books and bits and pieces we'll send across to a couple of select um, survey entrants. So you can find that survey at www.internetmarketingpodcast.org no, forward slash survey. So that's www.internetmarketingpodcast.org forward slash survey. Um, or you can look on the show notes and we'll have a link through there. So It'd be brilliant if people can let us know exactly what it is that um, they want to hear from the podcast because, you know, without you listeners, this podcast is nothing. So we want to try and make it as good as we can for you. So please give that survey a go. Um, The other thing is as well that um, I'm playing about quite a bit with screencasting um, at the moment. And you'll probably hear a bit more about that over the coming coming episodes. But one thing I've done and I'm going to try and do for um, most podcasts now is – there's certain bits of information and news that we kind of want to share, but we don't we 
there's quite a lot of subscribers to the podcast now. And cheers for everyone for subscribing. We get listened to by about sort of coming up to about 15,000 people a show. So there's loads of you. So there's certain things we'd want to share with you as podcast listeners, but we don't want, you know, hundreds of thousands of people to hear about it. So each month I'm going to try and do like a secret screencast um, where I share something a little bit more private. None of it's black hat or dodgy or anything like that, but it's just we want to keep it kind of fairly on the the down low, as it were there. So if you want to get this month's um, first secret screencast, just drop me an email um, at Kelvin, which is K-E-L-V-I-N, dot newman which is n-e-w-m-a-n at sitevisibility.com and um, with the word secret screencast in the subject line and i'll send that across to you so um it's going to be kind of fairly secretive there so it'd be great if people couldn't retweet it and just keep it to themselves that'd be brilliant so that's that one there so the survey and the screencast as it were but um talking about the survey and following up on some of the things um that c- came at the the research that we did there one of the questions that we asked and we've mentioned this a few times in the past is how frequently would you like us to produce the podcast and we've done this monthly and we've always done it monthly and we just assume the next step up would be to go fortnightly and lots of people have twittered us and told us um if ever you want to send any feedback on twitter as well that's um if you use the hashtag um hash impc we always check that and Mm. respond to that as well um but a lot of people have tweeted us and say, oh, can you go fortnightly? But when we actually did this survey, an overwhelming uh, majority um, of the people that got back in contact with us asked if we could go weekly. Um, so I've done a bit of um, begging and squeezing and trying to um, schedule Andy's time and trying to get you know all the bits and pieces we need to sort out to do that. And we are going to go weekly with the podcast. Oh, boy. So, that- <laughs> so yeah, I'm really, I'm really excited about that. I mean, it's going to be good for a couple of reasons. What it means is we'll be able to increase the amount we produce increase the regularity of it so it'll be more fresh and more new but we'll kind of keep each show quite tight so we'll probably have just an interview in a show or just a q a like we've just done or just a how-to guide or just an in-depth thing on email marketing and all those kind of things really to try and keep it each show self-contained nice and punchy easy to consume if you're kind of on the train or driving your car or whatever wherever you listen to the podcast but at the same time coming out once a week that's got fantastic news isn't it it is great news. And the other thing I would say, I, I, I'm probably sort of hidden in your thunder here, Kelvin, but the other thing I would just remind people is that now we've actually got a sort of web page home for the podcast, namely, you know, uh, internetmarketingpodcast.org. Um, I would encourage people to leave comments because, of course, because it's a WordPress blog, you know, it's in the blog format. Please do leave comments because that will form a great sort of, um, sort of platform for sort of um, discussion and feedback as, as well as the emails. Yeah, because... Yeah, the best, the best, some of the best, you know, email comments we have are the ones where people are responding to other people's comments, as it were. So, mm. you know, some of the ones that Daniel were talking about there were responding to other emails, and, that, and that, that's brilliant. So, yeah, you can get that all on um, internetmarketingpodcast.org. And also, Kelvin, were we also thinking possibly in the future about a phone number people can leave uh, audio comments on? Yeah, I, I mean, anyone can send an MP3 through to me um, on my email address, kelvinnewman.com, um, at sitevisibility.com. No, yeah, sorry, Kelvin Newman, kelvin.newman at sidevisibility.com. The email address in the show notes there. You can send an MP3 through to us there and we'll include that MP3 in the kind of Q&A. So that's brilliant for us because rather than me stumbling over reading out an email, we can just play your clip there as well. And we're going to try and look into some other options like whether you can um, set up a phone number that will record it and then we can use that. So if anyone's got any ideas about the best way to do that, drop us a line and we'll try and integrate that as well, particularly because... My hope is now that we're going to go weekly, we can have once a month a Q and A, did a you know Q and A session of twenty minutes where we answer the the you know the listeners' questions, mm-hmm. which is one thing that in the in the survey did seem very popular. Well, 
Ain't it exciting? We're going to go weekly. Excellent. Boy, we're going to be busy, aren't we? <laughs> but hopefully everyone will appreciate it. And, uh, you yeah. know, there'll be lots of, lots of good information going out there. So, yeah, I'm really pleased about it. Well, I've always really enjoyed producing this show. So it's, it, we're going to have even more fun, I think. OK, well, if that's it from everyone, uh, I will say farewell to you all. And uh, what we didn't say, actually, Kelvin, is when we're going to start this four-week regime. Oh, sorry, this weekly yeah. regime. Yeah, we're gonna um, we're gonna go from March. So this will this will be the last of the monthly podcasts, as it were. I'm not sure when we're, exactly we're going to start, but it's going to be in March. So the next and um, the next episode after this will be the first of our weekly podcast oh, episodes. How exciting! Now, Kelvin, uh, just before we go, there is an interview in the pipeline, or an interview or two in the pipeline, isn't it? We can quickly tell the uh, listeners about. Yeah, yeah. Coming up in this one is a really good website that I've come across that anyone who's doing any kind of publishing really should listen to this interview because it it could completely change the way you make money from your website. Um, it's a company called Skimlinks and their founder Alicia and I'm talking to her about her tool and her website which allows you to automatically sign up for every affiliate scheme in the world essentially and then so whenever anyone if you've got a forum if they drop a link to Amazon and click through and buy it you make money if they link to any kind of affiliate site um, you can make money from that so it's really powerful and really exciting so anyone who's got a, a blog a forum a publishing site it's a must listen interview so with that then with that exciting news um, goodbye everyone and we'll see you in March with the first of the uh, the weekly episodes so it's goodbye from Mr Kelvin bye bye from me and it's goodbye from Mr Rowles goodbye everybody see you next time see you soon everyone all the best so coming up then, that interview with Alicia of Skimlinks, interviewed by Mr. Kelvin Newman. Enjoy. Skimlinks is one of those um, services, Alicia, that I, you know when you, when you hear about it, you really think, oh, blimey, I wish I'd thought of that. That's a, that's a brilliant idea. So for any of our listeners who aren't familiar with Skimlinks, can you give them a bit of background in terms of um, the, the product and how it works? Yeah, of course. So uh, Skimlinks is a service that helps all sorts of publishers, whether they be a blog, uh, an editorial site, a newspaper site, even social media sites, so social shopping sites uh, or even forums and discussion boards. It helps them make money from affiliate marketing. You'd have to spend time uh, connecting with uh, signing up to lots of affiliate networks. So we've signed up 23 international networks at the moment, including... Or the big ones like Commission Junction, Linkshare, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, you would then have to sign up for the individual merchant programs. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be both time-consuming and often in many cases the programs are private or you have to apply for special permission for them. In our case, one account with us gives you immediate access to seven and a half international uh, merchant okay. affiliate accounts, including a lot that are private or hard mm-hmm. to get then if you were doing it on your own, you would have to manually go in and create all these affiliate links. Mm-hmm. You would have to um, uh, work out how to create a deep linking syntax for every different type of merchant. Of course, they're all very uh, different in the mm-hmm. way they do it. Some even don't support deep linking. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also very error prone and a lot of the documentation is not uh, accurate or, or full of errors. You then yeah. have to put all these ugly affiliate links into your site, uh, which just gives a kind of nasty uh, tone to Mm. your site with all these kind of unpleasant-looking affiliate links. Um, And then finally, there's a huge legacy of um, uh, ongoing task of keeping all these links up to date as the programs close or they go from one network to another. 
Mm-hmm. So with Skimlinks, you just um, sign up for an account with us. We approve your site. You copy and paste a piece of JavaScript into your site footer, mm-hmm. and then and then that's it. Every single um, you just do what you normally do, which is create content, or in the case of social media sites, have users on your mm-hmm. site create content. And anytime um, an existing retailer link is found on your site, when a user clicks on that link, Skimlinks automatically turns it into its equivalent affiliate link on the fly. So we, we work out exactly the deep linking syntax. We work out the best network to use if there's more than one network okay. that a particular merchant. Um, we provide holistic, comprehensive reporting and statistics uh, and then one check at the end of the month. Um, and because of our scale, um, although we retain um, a small portion of the rev share, mm. um, you um, in, in many cases you'll end up getting more than you would if you were doing it on your own mm-hmm. because of our scale. So that, that's so potentially then any website that has an outbound link that is or isn't an affiliate, um, their affiliate of currently, if they were using skim links, then they could become an affiliate of that and potentially start making revenue from the outbound links and the traffic they're sending to the sites. So, which sounds sounds amazing, really, for any publisher. I was wondering, um, what's the merchant's attitude um, been to all this? Because potentially this traffic they were currently potentially in a lot of cases already getting, but now it's being attributed um, to affiliates. Are they pleased about that because they can know where it's coming from or are they kind of, would they prefer not to be paying the affiliate fee or do you, do you see what I mean in terms of the oh, merchant's sure. attitude? Look, it's, it's been something that we've, um, we've spent a huge amount of time educating the market, um, talking to the networks, talking to a lot of the merchants. Um, and although what you say may be short, uh, true in the short term, mm. actually what, Skimlinks does is it creates an environment that encourages publishers to create and, and add more outbound links to mm. merchants on their site. So yes, in the, in the short term, there may be, you know, you know, yesterday, those links might have been for free. Mm. But now we've gone in and we've trained every single editor uh, within a network. We talk to the bloggers. Every single blogger is now aware that if they add a merchant link to, at the end of every relevant article, they have the potential to make mm. money out of that. Um, and on top of that, we provide a set of really valuable tools, mm-hmm. uh, two of which uh, will be launched in a month's time, mm-hmm. um, which will really change the way that sites look at creating content. Um, the, the challenge that we've got is always to make sure that editors continue to, to create content mm-hmm. that has still editorial integrity. Um, mm-hmm. and we, we give a lot of best practice information about that. But from a merchant perspective, you suddenly got you know, an entire high-quality network of content sites that are incentivized and trained to create outbound links to their site. And not just that, because the links are not converted until after they've been clicked on, these merchants benefit from the SEO impact mm. and the SEO benefit of having all these high traffic, high quality content sites linking directly to them. Oh, so they're actually, so they're not done for tracking URLs straight away then. So there isn't, well, there's an SEO right. benefit of those links as well. So that, that you know, that seems so even more of a win there for the, for the, um, the merchants anyway, merchants doesn't it? Merchants are delighted, honestly. They're battling to work with us because what we effectively have is a very because uh, we're very exclusive as well with who we allow into our program. Um, we only approve quality um, sites with original content that we believe uh, do, offer merchants value, mm-hmm. um, and and so we're, we're quite selective. It can still be a very small blog, but they still have to have you know a quality site and quality mm. content. 
And so we effectively have this network of thousands of sites that uh, we give um, tools and information and encourage them to, to create more content that links to merchants. So we have, we have merchants battling, uh, you know, knocking at our doors all the time <laughs> to be able to send messages out to these content sites. Oh, no, so that's really interesting. So you, you say that you're, you know, kind of very selective in terms of the, the publishers that you take on. Is it kind of restrict are you kind of on a closed beta at the moment for it or is it kind of open to as long as someone's got a website which it meets the quality guidelines is is it fairly easy to apply to um to work with skimlinks oh d- definitely we've we've been live for 18 months um mm. so you just go to our site skimlinks.com uh you register um it's free to register we will approve you within uh two or three days uh and you can sign uh, you can log in and start um looking at all the tools that we've got on hand for you uh it takes be 20 seconds to install Skimlinks <laughs> and you're live immediately. And that's it. You don't have to create any more links. You don't have to worry about any more affiliate marketing difficulty. You just mm-hmm. focus on creating content and on fostering a great community on your site and we do the rest. So managing all those um, affiliate networks and then the sub-merchants off the back of that, that must have been quite an um, infrastructure challenge to kind of build the system to do that. Was it? Was it, you know, how did that process go? And was it a long time in development to do that? It, it really is, yeah. Well, the, and this is kind of... Um, an interesting story because we actually initially built this entire platform to use internally. Mm-hmm. Um, we the, the the original incarnation of my company was not Skimlinks. Mm. It was a social decision making social shopping site that helped people kind of collaborate over group decisions. Mm-hmm. And so we actually came up with the idea of Skimlinks as a means of monetizing our own user generated content. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we had all these people that were bookmarking products that they liked from around the web and we wanted a way to be able to automatically uh, make those product links into their equivalent affiliate links. So we built it for um, ourselves two years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we made the decision to swap over to be purely skim links, which was um, October of 2008, mm-hmm. uh, we, we already had the platform in place. So over the last 18 months, we've um, we've scaled it to a point where we now serve our JavaScript 270 times a second. Blimey. <laughs> we, we process, I think it's on our website, I think it's about 13 million links a day. Um, we're on half a million domains. Um, we, we, you know, and, and there's negligible no, uh, difference um, to the user. There's mm. almost no uh, no indication to the user that they're uh, that we're on their site, uh, and we are completely fully redundant. So even if a number of the servers went down, there would still be no impact to the user experience or to the publisher. So I'm incredibly proud of our yeah. uh, our architect. We invested a lot of time on it. And that, so it must be then for you know there's we talk a lot in the podcast about subscription content and publishing, and it, you know it's a theme that kind of is quite of interest to a lot of our listeners in terms of how's the best way for publishers to survive online. And one that's often reeled out is that the the publishers should be exploring affiliate marketing as a way to generate revenue. And I mean, for for generalist publishers, this must be quite a big opportunity for them to kind of monetize their their traffic and their mindshare that they've got already. Oh, completely. I mean, you know, there's always going to be a small subset of publishers that are pure affiliates that focus on maybe one or two um, merchants, and they probably they don't they would want to do this all themselves. But for the vast majority of publishers, why why would you dedicate your editors and your own internal team to do something that's not your core business and that can you know that 
that we can do better, more accurately and, more, and, and simpler um, mm. without having to train your editors, without having to hire any new people. Um, it's, it's a complete no-brainer for any journalist publisher mm. site. Um, and even we, we work with a lot of existing affiliates who ha- had been battling with their own affiliate marketing responsibilities, just didn't want to do it any longer. It was boring. It was onerous. It was full of errors. And for the you know the small rub share that we take, it was completely worth it for them to mm. just hand it over to us. Well, I mean, even from the practical point of view of not having to sign up for all the different merchant accounts must be, you know, for, for most for most affiliates is kind of be quite good straight away just to instantly have, regardless of the, you know, the automatic factor of it, just having a kind of centralised um, system that, that manages all your affiliate links is, you know, pretty, pretty appealing, I would have thought. So in terms of, you know, because we've got a lot of listeners all over the world, is, are you operating in, in most markets at the moment or is there particular areas they're kind of looking in? Um, more so than others in terms of like the UK and the States and, and, and the like there? I, I think affiliate marketing and is much more advanced in the UK and in the US. Mm. Um, Europe is, is not far behind. Yep. Um, although we also work with South American, Australian and even some Asian merchants mm. and publishers. So the fact that we're based in London has absolutely no implication on the mm. site or the coverage that we've got. Already most of our business is in the US. Mm. And I suppose, you know, you're in quite a unique position um, having dealt with kind of affiliates, merchants and, and, and um, pub, you know, affiliate networks and agencies around the world. What's the big differences that you find between countries is that, you know, you say that kind of clearly the, the, the American market's, you know, the most mature there. Do, do you see big differences between how the, the different um, countries operate? I actually, I actually don't think the US is as advanced as the UK. In oh, many okay. ways. Um, the US, the affiliate marketing industry in the US is is uh, not as fragmented. Um, the technology is a little bit less um, developed and refined because I think there's a little bit less competition, mm-hmm. um, and it's also more focused on lead gen. So, you know, sign up for this um, new thing or um, you know buy this great new uh, medicinal product. Whereas mm-hmm. in the UK, it's a lot more retail based. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot more technical sophistication. There's a lot more players in the market. Um, and so it's quite a different kind of set of people that mm. do it. Um, and uh, but, but both of them still have, you know, uh, they're very, very big markets. And the U.S. market is larger. It just happens to be a lot more lead gen, banks, mm. finance applications, et cetera. As opposed to kind of products and, you know, you know yeah, the products and services sector, you kind of get a little bit more of in the U.K. So- That's right. Um, yeah, no, no. And how, how have you found the, the, the process of growing a business? Because there's kind of two sides that this is, um, your business is really interesting to our uh, listeners, Alicia. There's, there's a straightforward that I know, you know, a big ton of our um, listeners, you know, are publishers essentially online. So, you know, that kind of ability to monetize their content in that way is going to be, you know, very appealing to them as well. But also there's the kind of angle that you've kind of grown a, an online business, as it were, and you've kind of taken it from, you know, one iteration that you had with the you know the the social um shopping decision um system yeah. that you had to uh, so something that's connected but slightly different um have you found that process and um any advice that you can share with people who are wanting to sort of set up their own sort of digital or online business it, it's been the most defining challenging exciting depressing experience <laughs> of my life um the, the it, you know it, it's hilarious that the reason I, I started it was I wanted to be uh, to have more time <laughs> and uh, ironically I have almost no time <laughs> and people say that but it's actually the truth yeah. uh, uh, 
so it, it's a lot harder than I thought it would be. And it's not the kind of thing I would actually recommend unless you have a calling for it. I, I often call it like a, a religious calling to mm. become a, a nun or a monk. <laughs> I mean, I think there are, there are simpler options. I see a lot of very successful uh, internet marketers who work from home, mm. who, who, whose goal is to have uh, a steady passive uh, income stream, mm-hmm. um, whereas my goal was to create something industry-changing. Um, and, and so there's, there's a different... There's different motivations, I suppose, isn't there? You know, yeah. I mean, for our, one of our recent podcasts, we interviewed Tim Ferriss uh, about the four-hour work week, and yeah, a lot of his kind of um, angle is around the, you know, it's not necessarily, you know, free time has a value as well, doesn't it? So yeah, for some people, it's the freedom of the time that's what makes a business of their own appeal. Whereas for other people, it's yeah, that kind of responsibility and you know, an idea that drives them, I suppose, isn't it? It's, it's, I guess. Not that I'm artistic in the slightest, but perhaps it's what drives artists to create. I think I, mm. you know, I I love creating something. I love putting a team together. I love the the challenges. I often call it the MacGyver the MacGyver challenge. If you mm-hmm. remember that TV show where you know he was given a uh, piece of string and a paperclip and had to defuse an atomic bomb. So it's it's that's what it's like starting a business. You've got nothing. You've got absolutely nothing. You've got no time, no money, um, and you have to create something almost impossible with what you've got mm. but the sense of satisfaction that you get at the end of it is wonderful and, and to have people that use what you create and, and it actually make an impact in their lives that's that's what motivates me mm. and were there any particular places or you know books or advice you, you you know when you were starting up and running your business that you found really useful or um organizations that you went to that that, that might be helpful for people kind of facing that kind of process that they're going through yeah, I mean, for me, I, I had to move country. So I'm actually Australian, mm-hmm. and um, and I started the company in Australia, but realised very quickly that there wasn't the same um, community of other people going through what I was going through, the same access to capital and, and venture capitalists, uh, or the same access to potential customers. So I, I moved to London, mm-hmm. uh, and it was a fantastic decision because London um, is um, is really going through its own little boom at the moment mm-hmm. um there's a lot of great events there's a lot of great networking to be done there's a lot of people that just want to help and i was very very lucky to um you know i, I threw myself into the networking and that's probably the, the number one thing i would encourage anyone interested in this space to do mm-hmm. uh, is network 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 meet people find a mentor ask lots of questions give back to the community when you can um and i, I got an enormous amount back it wasn't books i read so much as just mm. people that I, I ask lots of questions to brilliant no no there's some yeah i think that's definitely top advice there i think particularly in the world of digital marketing it can be tempting to kind of read a blog or follow someone's twitter or do all these kind of things when actually i think you can't underestimate the fact of turning up to an event where people's going to be there and, and and talking to people you know i think you, you can't you can't underestimate the potential that, that can have for helping you grow your business and, and, and do well, well generally pre- Exactly. Well, pretty much in the, in the, when I first, when I did the switch from the uh, social shopping site to Skimlinks, what made that switch so easy was that I'd spent the previous year networking. Mm-hmm. And so when I made that switch, I could call up and talk to the CEO or founder of every one of my first clients. And we're talking, you know, very large mm. content network clients uh, and, and make those do- deals happen immediately. Um, and the only reason that could have happened is I would invested that time in forming relationships in my community. 
Brilliant. Well, uh, thanks for the advice there, Alicia. Um, I, I'll, I'll definitely include in the show notes some links through to the site because I think there'll be quite a few people that potentially will be interested in that from a publishing point of view. From a merchant point of view, if um, someone thinks that, you know, they, you know, potentially they have the services to sell that could go through this, is the best approach for them to kind of just go via their normal, um, you know, their normal affiliate network? Is that the best way? Yeah, so either I, I, in almost all cases, if um, a merchant is with an affiliate network, they should have been told about us. Mm -hmm. If uh, not, uh, hassle your merchant account manager. They should know about us. Uh, If you have your own affiliate program uh, external to an affiliate network, uh, contact us via our website and we can plug you in. Um, And coming soon, there will be many more opportunities uh, for us to be able to work with merchants and be able to get them um, better access to our publisher community. While um, me and Alicia were just talking um, off the line there after we finished the um, the interview, she mentioned that she's got a couple of um, new tools coming out, which by the time this podcast goes live should be out there. And one of them in particular does sound really interesting um, from a from a publisher's point of view. Is that is that okay to talk about those, Alicia? Indeed. So we are uh, now launching two very exciting tools. Uh, One is called the Skim Kit, which is an editorial toolkit um, done in Adobe Air, so similar to TweetDeck. Okay. Uh, Download it to your computer. It's aimed at content creators, so bloggers, journalists, um, editors of of, uh, different websites. So when they're creating their articles um, where they have to, you know, write an article about the 10 best winter coats for this season mm-hmm. or the five best DAB radios under 30 pounds, uh, rather than use Google to search for these kind of products, they simply uh, use the skim kit and it automatically searches the product feeds of the merchants that are part of Skimlinks uh, and makes that search really simple, really powerful, and any of the products that are returned are ones that, if you mention, um, will help you earn affiliate commissions. So it's, it, it just simplifies the entire process of creating content from a blogger or mm. editor's perspective and helps them create content that is really, really simply monetizable. And it's a really fun tool as well. There's all sorts of really cool little um, uh, features and, and uh, um, nice tools within mm. it. And then the second and related product is called Every Feed, which is similar to the Amazon uh, product feed that you can get and you can create applications out of it. Mm-hmm. But our feed includes Amazon plus hundreds of other merchants' product feeds uh, with one global powerful API. So you can create your own widgets, your own related product applications, your own shops. You can pull the content into your CMS. You can do all sorts of applications with it. And all of it's free and all of it's part of the basic Skimlinks proposition. It's going to really, we think, anyway, <laughs> redefine the way that uh, bloggers and content sites uh, create content on their site. No, I, I, Yeah, that sounds really interesting. I think the API route um, is, a, is a great route to go down for any business. And, you know, that's, it's definitely the way forward. But that that ability to search for products within a certain category and then know that when you link to them, they're all kind of within within you know, you can get some revenue kickback from that. I think it's really, really exciting because I know on a few of my hobby websites, I've, I've done that, you know, where it's kind of around cycling. So that'll be like the best five cycling shoes and I'll come up with the best five and then try and retrospectively work out there's an affiliate deal for them there. But if you know instantly when you're searching that they're 
you, you, there's the revenue earning potential of them. I think that that's you know that, that's pretty exciting. Exactly. I would call. and we'll also superimpose it with what's the best performing merchants, which merchants would pay you most. So if you wish, you could even make decisions about you know if you're going to be talking about a particular product, but it's sold on three different websites, you can actually link to the one that is more likely to earn you more money. Oh, brilliant! So you can go with the one that's the best performing there as well. And does it? I suppose it ha- with the product feed, you've got the price there as well, so you can go. Okay, yes. well, this is the one that's the you know you can get the this dab radio or this microphone on these five different websites, but it's currently the best deal on um, merchantx dot com. And you that's can right. I know that's that's really exciting. So yeah, that, um, it's a great tool there. And hopefully, well, by the time this um, interview goes out, it should be available. And just via your Skimlinks um, interface, is that that where you would find that? That's right. Brilliant. Well, yes, and it's, it's just it's an extra free tool that we offer all our publishers. Brilliant. Well, thanks. Um, thanks again for your time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you, everyone. Well, that's it for this week's show. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. Please visit the website at www.internetmarketingpodcast.org where you can see show notes, links and free subscription options to get new episodes delivered to your earbuds automatically. We'd love to hear from you. So if you have any questions or comments, please leave them on the website or send them to kelvin.newman at sitevisibility.com or feel free to send an MP3 audio file and we'll play it on the show. We'd also encourage you to leave ratings on iTunes. So this is Andy White signing off, wishing you the best until next time on Internet Marketing. Thank you.